All right, we're live, everyone. It's uh, good to be here on the Conversations That Matter podcast for a special edition. We're going to be talking about a book by Pierre Verret, who is a reformer, a Swiss reformer called The Christian and the Magistrate. And um, I wanted to let you know, though, before we get started with that discussion, that uh, there I'm going to mute you guys. Sorry. Hold on. Uh, if you guys could mute yourselves, I don't know how to mute you. Um, before we get started with that uh, discussion, I want, I want to, to bring to your attention something that's going to be happening here soon, and that is a, let's see if I can pull it up, uh, a conference that, let's see, here it is. Hopefully everyone can see that. <clears throat> so it is official now. You can uh, go online. You don't actually have to register, but you can find out the information at the BeNotConformedConference.com. BeNotConformedConference.com. It's uh, Stephen Wolf, Dr. Russell Fuller, and myself, June 10th through 11th in DeForest, Wisconsin. And all the details are there, what we'll be speaking about, um, frequently asked questions. I, I, I suppose if there's nothing, if there's something that uh, you want to ask that's not there, you can contact the DeForest Evangelical Free Church. Uh, and they may have your answer, but um, that's happening on June 10th. So hopefully, if you live in that area, or if you're even a state away, it's it's worth it to to come and um, fellowship and, and be with us. And um, I, it, it's a treat. I wasn't expecting Dr. Fuller to be there, but he is. So um, check that out at the Be Not Conformed, not the. It's just B there. Be Not Conformed Conference dot com. There's no the in it. Uh, be Not Conformed Conference dot com. And um, anyway. I uh, just wanted to share that with you before we get started with this particular discussion. Um, hope everyone had a good weekend. Hope everyone had a good Lord's Day. I know I did. Uh, the weather around here has been kind of rainy, but I was going to show you guys just real quick for those who are interested in this kind of thing, uh, some of the uh, pictures from just around the area that I live, because this is a particularly beautiful time, probably second to fall. Fall would be the primary time that people come to this area, but uh, this is what it looks like in my neck of the woods. This is very close to me. I took these pictures over the weekend. Um, that, that's like maybe 15 minutes from my house. That's uh, called the Ashokan Reservoir. My wife and I went there yesterday for a walk. And um, you see all these different shades of green. Uh, and, and I don't know, northern woods seem to have that. So I don't know, David, if in uh, Tennessee it's this pretty. I, don't, I, I happen to think it's probably not. But you guys are much farther along at this point. It's... Um... <clears throat> Tennessee is the greenest place I've ever seen in my life. It's there's definitely not as many shades of green, but um, you know, born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, greenest state in the land of the free. The the greenness is is uh, is striking, very very green. There's a lot of pines, more pines than uh, I think we have in New York. But um, anyway, yeah. So that's that's what's going on in my world. And uh, as uh, we, we did the last time, I have my dad, uh, Scott Harris, Pastor Scott Harris, and my brother, David Harris, uh, to join me for this. We've all read this book by Pierre Verret, uh, The Christian and the Magistrate. And we just want to talk about it today, just present it to you, uh, have a discussion about it. There's a lot of things that are brought up in this that are highly relevant for a lot of discussions, actually, that are happening now, uh, even discussions pertaining to Christian culture and Christian nationalism and all that. And uh, wisdom from the past is often discarded or forgotten, uh, but we don't want to be the people who do that. We want to be people who remember some of the good jewels uh, that have been passed down. And this is certainly one of them. Um, Pierre Verret, 
was a Swiss reformer. He was two years younger than John Calvin. And actually he served uh, for most of his ministry near where John Calvin was because John Calvin was in Geneva. Pierre Verret spent a lot of his time in Lausanne, which if you look at a map, it, it, they both border a lake. They're just on different sides of the lake. They're like 30 miles away from each other. And, and so he had a lot of interaction with John Calvin. And there's actually uh, there's a there's a, some good biographies on Pierre Verre. I read one of them over the weekend. And uh, I don't want to get into all the details of his life. But very influential guy. Uh, his students went to on to, to develop things like the Heidelberg Catechism, um, the Belgic Confession. Um, he loved his people. He he was. Uh, someone who wrote theology, but the theology was very practical. Unlike some of the other reformers, uh, he was he, he was very Bible centered and very practical. And uh, he, he has an amazing story. He was beaten and left for dead by Catholics. Uh, he actually died in captivity in Roman Catholic captivity, and they respected him so much they didn't want to kill him. Um, he th there's there's a lot of stories about him being a peacemaker in various situations. And one of the particular things that he had to navigate during his ministry, whether he was in uh, Lausanne or whether he was uh, somewhere else, because he ministered all over the place. Uh, Leon was another town that he, he did a lot of work in. He had to, to navigate this whole conflict that arose during the Reformation between the kings or, or the, the local magistrates and yeah. the religious uh people the whether it's reformed or catholic so you have like, like a lot of moving parts you have catholics who are used to roman catholicism being the main religion and not even having authority uh in some ways over the civil magistrates um and then you have uh the civil magistrates trying to figure things out once they become reformed and doing things like dictating articles of faith prohibiting church discipline from going forward he had to correct all these things. And so uh, a lot of his essays and letters and teachings are incorporated into this book, The Civil Magistrate. And uh, it's not a standalone book. This is uh, this is a bunch of things that he wrote. But he's answering these questions. Uh, where are the lines between magistrate, government and the church? What what authority and jurisdictions do they inhabit? What, what's the duty of a Christian? When can you declare war? When, when is it okay to rebel? When can't you rebel? Those are the kinds of questions that he had right in front of him. So um, any other background information uh, that either of you want to give on this? That I don't know if you did any further research into Pierre Verre. I only read what was in the um, translator's notes. Uh, born about 1511. Died at 60 years old. Yeah, which was so very brief at the beginning, but that's helpful to anybody who's going to read the book. Yeah, the, the translator actually wrote a biography of Pierre Verre, uh, R.A. Sheets, and that's the one that I, and I think it's called The Smile of the Reformation, because he's known for his joy and his generally uh, pleasant disposition. Um, so check that out. Uh, R.A. Sheets, uh, Pierre Verre, The Smile of the Reformation, if you want to know more. Um, well, during this, go ahead. One thing, um, I mean, I so I, I read this in the context of also reading this, Vindicii Contra Tyrannis, which you can get from Canon Press. They have a really nice copy. Um, that is a anonymous um, French Huguenot 
treatise on um, the Christian's relationship to government, but it's more specifically related to what do we do when the government gets oppressive and like, when can we take up arms? And it's really interesting because, um, you know, this Pierre Vere is going, this is going on in the 1530s and 40s. Um, the Dicii Contra Tyrannis is written in 1579 as the, um, the persecution in France is getting more and more intense. And one thing I noticed between the two books and I'll, I guess I'll probably be drawing this, like drawing these two things together a little bit, but, um, like the rhetoric gets a lot more uh, intense between the, the the two books. Peter Murray is a lot more like, <laughs> you know, just like relax. We need to kind of um, sweat this out. Whereas Vindicia Contra Tyrannus is a lot more like, here's the justifications for going to war. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm sure we'll get into that more. But that was that was just an interesting contextual thing because he's pretty early. Like he's a very early reformer. So, um, yeah. Well, even at, uh, I forget which council it was, um, I want to say the disputation, the Luz I think it's called the Luzane Disputation, uh, where there were three reformers, well, there were more than that, but he was there, uh, Farrell, the guy who kind of like was instrumental in calling William him to ministry was there. And then, um, and then John Calvin was there. Calvin wasn't even supposed to participate. Calvin was just supposed to observe. And uh, during one point, though, he did participate, but Pierre Beret was one of the primary guys debating the Catholics. And, and so he, even though he was two years younger than Calvin, he actually preceded Calvin in some ways. Um, like as far as getting into ministry and being a recognizable figure uh, in the reformation. Um, one of the things that he writes about too, in the book for contextual uh, reasons, I think it's good to bring up is that there were these Anabaptist sects, he even calls them Anabaptists who, had very interesting ideas on government, whether that was government should be abolished altogether or whether government even mattered. And then some were just rebellious. They just, uh, you know, I, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, he uses the word insurrection, which I feel like that word has kind of been uh, kind of soiled at this point. But but there are true insurrectionists and the Anabaptists, some of their sects were like that. So he writes against them, too. So on the one hand, you have tyrannical governments trying to impose on the church. On the other hand, you have peasants trying to lead rebellions. And this is the situation Pierre Verre found himself in. Um, so uh, and the tyranny, like I think you said, David, I think you're right. It, it wasn't quite as maybe as much as uh, what what you find in like Lex Rex. Um, but but there certainly was tyranny. The, the civil magistrates were trying to even prevent church discipline from taking place and prevent the church from uh, being the church. And, and so he had a problem with that. Uh, first thing I wanted to, to ask maybe to, for, by way of discussion is, um, he starts off the whole thing with different forms of, go of government and the importance of, uh, or the, or maybe the non-importance of different forms. He brings up three, uh, democracy is the, is the last one, but he brings up monarchy and oligarchy. And, it, it's interesting because he talks about it for quite a while. And today there's a lot of debates over this. What's the best form of government? More debates as time goes on, as people realize that what, what we have doesn't seem to be working. What is Pierre Verre's conclusion on these three? What are some of the strengths and weaknesses that you thought were compelling of these three different systems? Um, you my mic, David, is this uh, still giving feedback? I'm okay. I don't hear I don't hear feedback now. No. Okay. 
Um, I, it, I would say it's worth purchasing the book just for that chapter because uh, he deals with monarchy, aristocracy, which and monarchy and aristocracy can both generate into an oligarchy and in democracy. Um, and he does a kind of a pro-con approach, you know, what's good about each one, what's bad about each one. And then uh, since you're just asking kind of a conclusion, um, dealing with that, he says, problem is, is that man is corrupt. Um, and even though he is given authority over animals, and he actually has a good discussion there about uh, the body should be the servant of the will, uh, mind, the head's the chief over the body and its parts, etc. He ties that back in here uh, as well. But by the time he gets through it, he says the problem is that all forms of government, because they're dependent upon man, and man is corrupt, are going to end up being corrupt themselves, unless there is a means of something that's higher and it actually is um, just and righteous, which he's going to get back to God. Any form of government is either being good or bad, according to how whoever is sovereign in that form of government is tied into actually being the laws of God. I would say that's a good way to summarize it. Yeah, he, he talks about democracy, which is probably the most applicable for our situation and, and the weaknesses of democracy. And there's, there's a few prescient quotes um, that he has about this. I'm trying to find them right now. He, he's, uh, it says, here, here's one of them. Um, he says that there's a desire uh, which every man has of living in his own carnal liberty and fleshly pleasure without being subject to any laws. He says the other thing is, uh, ambition and greed, which are reasons why many take the offices of the country by intrigue, either, either for, for themselves, themselves or, or for their friends and consorts, and for those by whom they have been corrupted. And this is done not out of a desire to maintain God's honor or the public good or to administer true justice, but it is done merely for the honor and earthly profit of those who hope to receive it and to reign above the others. That's on page 15. Uh, I'll just continue one more paragraph. He says, seeing that such people who snatch offices and positions by such means and who and seek them by such them. means do not set forth as their end the glory of God or the edification of his church or the welfare of the general public, but only their own glory and their own uh, gain, it is not possible that they shall ever fulfill their office and duty as they ought. So and, and then and then he, he talks about how this can lead to negligence of uh, the disdain and just the disrespect for the law because the people who are administering it are basically corrupt. And, and, and you think when you're looking at this, you're like, well, that's that's exactly what we live in. That's what he says. The weaknesses of democracy are. And that's what we live in today. So it's and it's because man's corrupt. Right. Yeah, so, I can even put in there that the election of magistrates is one of the two great evils because people are going to elect magistrates who allow them to do evil right yeah there's incentive to uh try to get someone who's going to let you do your your fleshly pleasures and and so forth um, he says about democracy um i thought i underlined this quote um that the democracy is uh oh democracy his description is where many times each tries to be master and where the most rebellious, seditious, audacious, and greatest squawkers take the prize. That was his description of democracy. So 
it, when you see these things being happening right in front of your eyes every day, um, I think it, it, there's there's a a movement. I I don't know if what if I want to call it a movement, but there's a a feeling I'm getting from some younger people that they think a monarchy might be better or some kind of a centralized or, or more uh, totalitarian, maybe even form of government um, might be better than the democracy we're in. And, and you can't entirely blame them because of what they're seeing. But he talks about the weaknesses of that as well. Uh, and, and it seems to be that the monarchy is good as long as you have a good king or queen. And then it's, it might actually be the best form. But if you don't have a good, the problem is that doesn't last. And their heirs end up usually squandering the capital that their parents built up. Well, he so. says, he says, like the, the the page after that quote about democracy, it says, "When all is well considered and mulled over, we can come to no other conclusion than that men can never be more miserable and so very poorly governed than when they are governed by their fellow men. That is, by governors who are mortal men as they, no matter what form of government they may take." So it's kind of like. <laughs> as long as as long as people are in charge of you, you're going to be miserable. Yeah. So not not the most encouraging thing, perhaps. But I mean, the encouraging thing is that in each form of government, though, if you have good people, then you're going to have a good government. It's just going to reflect wh whoever you have uh, making the decisions. Um, I, I will add it. He has a good discussion. And I'll just repeat, I, it, the book is worth the price just for that that chapter. Uh, about each one, because you mentioned that there are, you know, folks currently wondering would it be better off with the king or something like that. And he, he gives the pros and cons of each one, and each one does have a pro and a con. Um, and with kings is you do have this uh, uh, problem that they're they're mortal, they're going to die. So even if you have a really great king, he's going to die, what comes after him. And then you can have a really good king, but no king can do everything. Uh, so he has to have counselors, whatever counselors like. And if the counselors are bad, you end up, they turn him away or they subvert what he's trying to do. And you still have a problem. Um, that problem shows up again in aristocracy, where you try and pick the, the best of men. But usually it's not the best of men that end up there. You get a, a, a cobble of selfish men who want what they want and you still end up with a basically an oligarchy so each of these has a pro and a con but the bottom line is still going to come back to the quote david just gave it, it, you got men they're corrupt yeah and there's where a problem is so you it's not so much the form of government i thought he had a good discussion on that it is the character of the man and or men or the people and are they set to follow what god has said or not and that's right. whether it's a good government or not. Yeah. And we started off probably the best way you probably you could have in, in this particular country, especially in the South, where you had people yeah. like Washington and Jefferson yeah. wanting to put their time into planting and arranging things uh, at, on their farms, basically. And yeah. and then yeah. going into office, not for their own benefit, but because they wanted to serve. It was just an obligation they felt they had to their people to serve their people. And and that's gone. That's totally gone now. You don't. No one does that. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's become what he described. Uh, he conceived as God as the sole sovereign and magistrate, and as ministers uh, who are accountable. Which I think this is a, a big. Uh, it's of an important principle because if God is the only sovereign, 
it, and people aren't sovereign. The sovereignty isn't in the, the, the body politic. The sovereignty isn't in a, a limited group of people or a king, but it's actually in God. That means that everyone who uh, is responsible before him to apply his law are actually just ministers. They're, they're servants. They're public servants. We even use that word sometimes. So he talks about there uh, a little bit about um, checks and balances. And, and, and he doesn't use that term, but he talks about the importance of men going into office who know this, that who know that they're accountable to God. They're going to be judged based upon their ability to apply his law and whether they respected it or not. So th this sparked in my mind, um, one of the things that has been good in our country for a long time is checks and balances. And, and I specifically thought of the oath of office as being one of those checks that every person who comes into office uh, on the higher levels, at least has to put their hand on a Bible. At least that's the tradition. And the whole, what's the whole point of that is to show that they're going to be judged for the decisions that they make. Uh, by a, a higher power. So we actually have this baked into our system. And um, and that's a form of cultural Christianity, really. That's that's that that's something that is uh, applies to everyone who is an office seeker. At least it, it did up until recently. Uh, what other I don't know if there's other checks and balances you can think of that point to God or point to the fact that these are ministers and not sovereigns. Like built into the system, or I mean, I mean, constitutionally, you know, provided. <laughs> yeah, I, either way. I mean, just just ways to to remind people that they're public servants and, and they're a liaison. They're they're applying something beyond them to people. Not they're not creating law. I mean, it's not our country, but I feel like you saw this over the weekend with the coronation. A little bit of um, the new king of England where he has to put his hand on a Bible and he has to, you know, I mean, the language is very explicitly you know, coming from this era. Um, it's, do you basically, do you um, promise to like defend the, um, the Protestant faith? And I don't know. I, I've seen a lot of kind of, because, you know, I, the, the, the King of England is very obviously not a, <laughs> very obviously not a religion that we know of. Um, but this 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 vestige this holdover is you know the intertwining of the church the church is actually the check on is one of the checks on um the the magistrate and the and the, the english system and the constitutional monarchy uh, that's good uh someone in the chat actually put term limits down as an example i i think that could be yeah well he talks in a later chapter about the difference between uh magistrates and pastors and that's going to be part of it but that goes back to what david said that was uh, england's a good example the church is a state function so it's supposed to be the check but you can obviously that the current government doesn't care and the current monarch doesn't care about what god says um but if you go back in our own history there's so many quotes from the early um uh, fathers of the republic they made that warning. If we are a people who depart from scripture, we become an unrighteous people, then we're going to collapse. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing is the departure of the culture away from a Christian moral values. The culture is collapsing. 
Well, on that note, um, he talks about uh, Christians being falsely accused of insurrection and that it's interesting. He provides all these biblical examples uh, from like Luke 23, 2 and Acts 17, 6 through 7 of um, similar circumstances where Christians are accused of of being the ones who are in in favor of some kind of uh, overthrow or, or public chaos. And, and I thought that was so interesting because we have that now, too, that Christians are often accused of being the troublemakers in the, the rebels, right? They're, they're the ones that won't conform. And yeah. he has yeah. some lessons that Christians should take from these examples from uh, Scripture. Um, setting our expect this is what I wrote, setting our expectations, yeah. submitting yeah. to authority, so making sure that our behavior is good, and then suffering. Those are his three main things. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, which that's, that's that, that, that hits home. That's where we are now or where we're approaching is we have to set our expectations. We have to submit to government as much as we can. We'll get into the, what the limits of that are. And then we have to be willing to suffer for what we believe, which is a, that's a hard thing for people who have enjoyed a lot of uh, bounty. So I don't know if you had any thoughts or, or uh, on that or on, on any of it, that's really in the second chapter. Yeah, that warning, uh, warnings against insurrection or rebellion. Um, can I go back to what you'd said earlier? I hate doing that because I think in page 20, he actually summarized the whole thing about the only hope, and it's probably worth just reading. Um, go for it because you're, you're back to it. It says, um, I do this chiefly in order that all who read this might more easily understand, at least in a part, of the vast treasures of the marvelous wisdom and knowledge of God, containing the few brief words of the Ten Commandments, and that they might know how to conform their emotions, thoughts, words, work, morals, and all their life in whatever state they may be in, the rule of the will of God. For this is the sole means of obtaining what we cannot obtain in any other manner, whatever, for the uh, reasons we've previously set forth. We must not hope that any king, ruler, or people shall ever enjoy a lasting prosperity unless God reigns in all and overall, and unless they're governed by him. Uh, then he, uh, dropping down, uh, as he gives us his law to make us understand how we have failed to recognize our need, he also gives the Holy Spirit by Jesus Christ, his son, renews our hearts, gives the gifts and graces necessary to accomplish this law. If this be done, and there is neither monarchy, aristocracy, democracy, nor any form of civil government, whatever, having its foundation, this law of God, which shall not be suitable to human society, to all nations over which God shall preside. And he concludes the chapter, on the other hand, does not be done. We can expect nothing but horrible confusion, destruction, desolation, utmost ruin of all empires, kingdoms, uh, countries, communities, peoples, nations, and commonwealths. So that is a good introduction even to his warning against insurrection and rebellion because it's what's behind it. If it's an insurrection, is this according to what God says and according to his word, according to you know, the way he's set things up to function, or is it our own hearts and insurrection rebellion? And that's why you have a good discussion on, on that. Uh, there were false uh, being uh, falsely accused of insurrection rebellion. And so part of that chapter, um, the second one in the book is, uh, things like don't give justification to your, you know, your enemies or their accusations, uh, reminding you that the kingdom that we're really serving is a spiritual one and our weapons need to be spiritual. So 
and then he makes a big case in here that the purpose of magistrates is defense of the good and chastening of the wicked uh, from Romans 13. But yeah. he does have, you know, again, is if it's not properly done, then we are the ones who are actually fighting against God. And so that's going to be part of this discussion uh, in these other chapters. But I, I thought that ending of that first chapter is well worth reading and understanding. And it certainly puts a good perspective on what's happening in our own nation. That's for sure. Um, we do have someone who's going to make a comment, uh, uh, Timothy Barrett, and then we're going to go uh, through some of these other chapters because I have a number of things written down. We do here. have someone who's going to... Uh, Timothy, oh, comment. turn off your uh, computer sound. Or not, not the, all of the sound, but... You have it on YouTube. Uh, Timothy, YouTube oh, going turn off, off your uh, computer sound. <laughs> Is that better? Yeah, yeah. Did okay. you have YouTube open while um, you were... <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to comment on when you brought up the three... Well, first let me say I haven't read the book. I was speedily reading through before the stream tonight. And, uh, but the three forms of government that he mentions, and when you mentioned democracy, um, I think it's important to uh, note that as relates to this country you cannot find a favorable quote about democracy from our founding fathers. Um, they, Amen. they, they wanted nothing to do with democracy in terms of setting up a form of government. Um, now, um, setting up a Republic, um, they were very concerned with, um, the character of the people. No Webster, uh, who was instrumental in uh, promoting the ratification of the um, Constitution, he um, actually said that the Christian religion was the most important and one of the first things in which all children under a free government ought to be instructed. And so it really was the design of the Constitution that it depended upon um, the people being of Christian character. And... Um, uh, in fact, I was trying to find this quote, but in the middle of 1800s, as I recall, there was an individual who, uh, a representative, who actually said he couldn't imagine a day when the people of America would elect anybody but Christians into office. And, and obviously, that thinking has long since gone by the wayside. And we've, you know, we've really diminished our opportunity to have and enjoy freedom because we have not um, followed the wisdom of Noah Webster. We have not diligently instructed children in the principles of the Christian religion because, as he said, those principles are the uh, foundation of the Republican form of government that we enjoy. Yeah, that's a good point, Tim. Uh, you know, I, I was just reminded as you were talking, someone reached out to me today um, asking about your your uh, your website um, where, where you help with uh, homeschoolers and Christian schools and, and teach history and that kind of stuff. Um, what's it just for everyone? What's the name of it again? The oh, are you muted? <laughs> I think your microphone's muted, Tim. Can you hear me? Okay. Can okay. I don't think I have me? my setup oh. right here, so I'm on a delay with you. So I apologize for that. But um, 
it's covenantacademyonline.com is uh, the website for uh, the education that I provide. And um, yeah, we uh, cover the spectrum of subjects from fourth grade up through 12th grade. And so covenantacademyonline.com is yeah. that website to go to. Yeah. Thanks, Timothy. Appreciate it. Um, so, you know, what Timothy just brought up is interesting because uh, I, I had that go through my mind as well when I saw the forms of government because I thought, where's ours? We're, we're a republic. We're not any of these. But he says there's combinations in between. And a republic is basically the fusion of, uh, of a certain type of oligarchy with a certain type of democracy. That's 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 how I see it, at least. Um, so it, it is a hybrid, I guess, of sorts, trying to get the best of both worlds, if possible. Uh, so there's accountability for our leaders, but uh, we're also not having the masses uh, overwhelm the system with the mob rule. Um, well, it was a far, he called it aristocracy, is trying to find naturally, yeah, natural men that could do this, but they're elected by the people. When the or uh, I'm going to throw this back into the whole, you know, cultural Christianity thing. When the culture is Christian, then you're going to elect people who reflect the values of that culture. And now we have shifted. And so now we're no longer electing those who are over us, our aristocracy, uh, by those who are the best. So they're, you know, Schumer's got to be one of the worst. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My state. It would be horrible to live under him. Yeah. Fortunately, he's not a king. He's not a monarch, but he, he some of these people think they are. Um, moving you, on. Go ahead. Really quick. Um, wouldn't you, I guess this is a maybe a rhetorical question, maybe not, but isn't each one of those, there's sort of a natural organic element to each of them. So monarchy, there's, there's a monarchy has kind of been the rule throughout human history in, in various contexts, but so is aristocracy, aristocracy in some ways. Certain people, certain people just tend to kind of take those leadership roles. But then at the same time, whenever a group of people gets pushed in any direction or gets desperate, then the democratic element. So it seems like all three of these, there's an organic nature to all three of those types of rule that will ebb and flow depending on, I don't know, historical context and I guess tradition well, in some way, but democracies are usually <clears throat> republics are like, Oh, that leader was so terrible. We really don't, we don't want one man having that authority. And they start, you know, a republic. And then over the period of time though, the natural course of events is people tend to consolidate. That's even Israel's history. They, they tend to centralize authority into one person because we all, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why we do that. Exactly. I, I guess we all um, feel more comfortable when it's, a figurehead of some kind who's in charge making the decisions and not us. Uh, what do you think? There, there's a whole chapter. This is the weirdest chapter to me, but he, he writes this whole chapter about including magistrates and it's not just them. He talks about pastors and teachers, but magistrates in particular for our purposes under the fifth commandment so that when uh, you're called to honor father and mother, that must mean honoring civil magistrates. That was to me the weakest part of the book. He makes some compelling, compelling arguments, arguments, but, but um, I, 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 did you feel that way as well? That that was kind of weird. Yeah, I had to the stretch. I read twice and then took a lot of notes trying to figure it out. I, 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 I think I do understand what he was coming from. He was because that was part of a series of messages he he gave, all based on Ten Commandments. And out of Ten Commandments, this is how society should run. 
so what he's tying under this is that in the fifth commandment you have the one about honoring authority so children honor the authority of their parents and then he just ties everything else into that it's sort of a an analogy keep working and he will throw in examples um you know it's definitely not a even better if he just went to the particular verses and just emphasized those about uh, obeying or subjecting yourself in submission to various forms of authority and government uh, and the various levels of it. But he was, it actually is part of a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. That's why it's a little weird for us is, you know, because he's just trying to emphasize one thing and out of this comes his principle we have authorities we're supposed to obey to submit to so yeah it was it was probably the strangest chapter to understand but it was putting in the context it's a series of sermons dealing with each of the commandments i don't know if that helped yeah well i i knew that i knew he was taking it out of a series um yeah it's just i almost thought he, he doesn't say this but i thought you could use what he's saying to legitimize um the, the Roman Catholic title when they call their, their priest father. Uh, cause, and, and he makes a compelling case for some of this, you know, Paul calls his, uh, spiritual descendants, children and th stuff like that. But, um, I don't know the fifth commandment. I always really, I, I, I've always conceived of it as if you're going to bring it beyond father and mother, it's, it'd be the old Testament way of speaking about fathers. So sometimes in the genealogies, it can be a grandson, but it's still considered a father-son relationship. And, and so it, it's having respect maybe for your lineage, like a, a pietas. I could see that more, I guess. Uh, do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have put down. But, but yeah, I, thought that, I still think that was strange, I guess. <laughs> but, His real point, actually just coming back to, is here's a principle that those in a position of lesser authority should obey those in greater authority, um, uh, page 46, whoever's never learned to obey will never also never learn to how to rule well or how to command justly. So where's the training ground? Uh, the training ground is in the fifth commandment. I learned to obey my parents. And out of that, I learned how to deal with society. And if I learned well from my parents, I'll also learn how to be a parent myself. And, you know, that's his yeah. dealing with. Yeah. Um, that so so that chapter uh my for I, I there's some important things i guess but um that was the least important chapter to me um he talks well, about I, I don't know it's the least important because there actually is a principle here that's important okay. and i think this is showing up in society too and i think this hits your christian cultural thing you're talking about one of the reasons our society's declined so much is we've destroyed the family right and when children do not learn in the family the importance of being mom and dad, and that in families, even when there's still mom and dad there, and mom and dad no longer require their children to obey them, we've created anarchy. Uh, I think page 51 was the first foundation of honor is the acknowledgement of God as the author of this order, the family order, and of human society, the greater order within greater society which he gave his rule to govern men in order to instruct them to know him, his wisdom and justice, to fear his judgment, obey his will. So if the parents haven't done their job there in the family, you're going to see the rebellion all the way up. And that's what we do see. Right. So 
even though it was written strangely from our standpoint, we're not, we don't usually do that to scriptures. We would prefer to deal with the specific one. The principle he brings out here is actually extremely important. Uh, God ordains all legitimate authority. And the first authority you have as a child, is that's your parents. Yeah. Well, and that, I know some of the founders talked about the fam families being the, ex what do they call them? Um, not lab. I'm thinking something is synonym for lab, but like a place where you would experiment for democracy. That's where people learn to be good citizens first. And they can't be good citizens unless they have that initial experience. Um, I wanted to read a... a uh, passage from page uh, 49 uh, he says and though the pagans did not possess the written law of god as the people of israel but only natural law nevertheless this natural law taught them so well that they included under the name of piety the honor and reverence which children must render to their fathers and mothers and every man to his fatherland and country now that together with another statement he makes later on in another chapter about Nebuchadnezzar, Darius and Cyrus all making public decrees to worship God. And he basically says Christians are put to shame when they they're not even behaving as Christianly as Nebuchadnezzar, Darius and Cyrus when they refuse to do that, those kinds of things. It, it strikes me as very relevant for a debate that's happening right now about cultural Christianity, because he's saying that we actually have a natural duty uh, that, uh, according to natural law, to um, honor our our country or our fatherland, our nation, I guess. Now, those aren't all the same, but um, but the region where you live, where, where your fathers have lived, right, to honor that, respect it. Uh, he's saying that that's something that even apart from Christianity, one can, one notices that and sees that. And, yeah. and, and the debate that uh, that I think this concerns is, is over, and these are loose categories here, but the common grace versus created order. And, and, and those things aren't, they're, they're not really at odds and they shouldn't be, but there, there are Christians who seem to think, and I've, I've been running into this over and over, that every, because of total depravity, we're all just as bad as we can be. And, uh, and the only thing that keeps us from not being as bad as we can be, let, if left to ourselves, is common grace. That God, God um, um, somehow restrains us, and it. But there is another. Um, Stephen Wolf talks about this in his book on Christian nationalism. There's another way to approach it, and Pierre Verre represents this, where he says, "No, there's some natural instincts God gave us that are actually good." It, it so so we can actually have be totally depraved. Pierre Verre was a Calvinist, uh, or I mean, he was <laughs> he wouldn't have thought of himself that way. He would have. You told him he was a Calvinist, he'd be like, "What?" You know, a proto-Calvinist. I taught that? Calvin everything he knows. Um, but but yeah, he, he proto-Calvinist. He, he believed in predestination. And I've read some of his stuff on it. Kind of like St. Paul. He was a proto-Calvinist. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and Augustine. They were all Calvinists, right? Um, so so he, was that, he would have believed in the doctrines of grace, and he would have believed in total depravity. But he also thought that there were, there were good instincts, not not good that can please the Lord spiritually, but there, there was instincts that were part of the a fabric of creation that we have. And one of those is you honor your parents. Um, 
one of those uh, might even be, as these pagan kings did, you, you make, make public, public declarations to honor the creator, honor the true God, as, as much as you know about that God. That's good for your country, right? These are just common sense things, at least they used to be. Now we have Christians, nonetheless, saying that we shouldn't do that, that that's bad, that that's uh, that, that that it's wrong um, to, to to publicly recognize Christianity or to um, I don't know to, uh, to to think that pagans can have any good instincts whatsoever. So I, I'd be curious to hear what you think about that because that was a little passage that. Uh, I thought was highly relevant and most people reading it might just skip right over that. But for today, it gives you a window into a different way of thinking about these things. Well, he, in chapter one, he talks about, um, he says he's included in his law, every moral teaching necessary for men to live rightly. So there's like, a, there's an assumption that, well, yeah, of course, like the law should be based on what's set forth in scripture. And he says the, this law of scripture shall supply with true Christian ethics, politics, and economics if it be well understood. So there's this is something that it really, really confuses me um, with the current sort of Christian nationalism, cultural Christianity debate. Um, and I guess I was hoping for some kind of, that he, there would be some kind of like he'd address it somehow. Um, like where should our the basis for our laws come from and what. And it's it, there isn't he doesn't deal with it because it's just assumed. It's to him, it's just an obvious thing. Like, of course, this is you're going to get your ethics and your laws from the Bible, and that's going to that's going to impact everything. While also recognizing that there are things that are just integral to the way that God's created us, and we have consciences. So, what I don't understand is why um, why you would I don't understand the uh, well. You know, uh, we we don't want to be explicitly, you know, Christian in our our our, our framework of law, because he just assumes that it's just assumed. I'm not even sure how they get to that. What happened to Romans one and Romans two? You know, we we can see the immoral and righteous and how they're declining, but Romans two deals with the moral unrighteous and. There is a law that's in their conscience. Um, Romans 1 tells us he already put that in their conscience. Why do they want to get rid of that? I, I, don't, I don't understand how they can get to their position of trying to say that, you know, a secular society is better than one that has a, a basic cultural Christianity underlying it. I had breakfast with Jacob Dell this morning, and we ended up, I mean, where our purpose wasn't talking about this, but came up with, as he was talking with people he's trying to minister to, is that in coming into a place where even though they're not actual Christians, they're coming from a traditions of Christianity, um, uh, like Roman Catholicism, or you know, uh, your mom was talking about growing up in Lutheranism, they did hear about certain truths. They, there is a God. He created us. Uh, Jesus came, that he died. Now, they didn't understand how to apply that, they're still trying to work for the salvation, but having these basic things as part of their culture gave you the opportunity to explain to them how it all fit together rather than dealing with someone who's completely secular. You gotta start back in square one. There is a God and he created you. That's one reason why creation evangelism is being 
push, and I'm certainly one that would push for the same thing now because I have to speak to these pagans to get them to understand some basic truths. You know, you've been dealing with this the last couple of weeks, and you know, we had this conversation when it started erupting. We were down in Tennessee a couple of weeks ago. I can't understand how they can think this way. Do they just get rid of Romans one and two? <laughs> they no, they wouldn't say that. <laughs> there's no there's no way they would say they're getting rid of any anything scripture. I I think it comes. Well, like I said, I I, I don't know what to completely attribute it to, but this idea I though that. that um, we're we're just so bad but people apart from from christ are so bad and common grace is the only thing and and there's no we can't really trust our instincts we can't trust the way god's wired us because it, it's so tainted by sin and we don't ever practically speaking we don't get involved in government we don't get involved in in, in social things um but i i think th there's also this sense in which if it's not inside the church it's probably bad like i would it's, say it's inside the church is probably bad it's yeah yeah right the church isn't a lot of the churches you walk into it might in, in our area i mean the rainbow flags are mostly on churches well that's um, what um jake told me this morning he's the only church in his area in uh, millerton that does not have a rainbow flag flying on it the only yeah one. That's, that's crazy the brand in the northeast that's just the brand and he's Episcopal, which makes it weird because <laughs> most of the Episcopals have rainbow flags. Um, I'm going to bring Mike Landry into the conversation. Um, Mike, you are muted right now. If you want to be part of the discussion, unmute your microphone and we'll come to you. Um, I Let's see. Oh, you unmuted it. Can you hear me? Can I hear cannot me? hear you. Oh, I hear you now. But you're frozen. <laughs> we lost Mike. Oh, he's back. Oh, Mike is coming back. M Mike, if you turn off the video and keep the audio, we may be able to hear you better. We just want your mic, Mike. <laughs> okay. I heard okay. Okay, I can hear you now, I think. People, people told me I had the face for... <laughs> are you guys hearing that i'm not hearing anything no i don't, I don't have anything all right mike i think your connection's bad i'm not sure what's going on there um if, if your connection gets better rejoin uh i can't hear you for some reason i i think it's it's lagging for some reason i don't know if your, your internet speed can't handle it or what uh, put a question um, or your comment in the chat and we can read it oh yeah yeah i could do that yeah our infrastructure is also collapsing. mike if you're still hearing me put a comment in the private chat mike's a patron so patrons can call in they can be part of the show um and they can be part of the private chat too so uh we'll put it here so uh moving on then while we're waiting for mike um what about uh, Pierre Verre's rule, and this this pops up a number of times, that we must submit um, unless asked to violate God's law to the government. That That's the, the general way we operate as Christians is we submit. But there's the one exception is if they violate God's law. We had to navigate this during COVID, and I remember thinking that that was... I mean, in general, I agree with that. But the way so many Christians applied it was like, well, 
staying home with a mask on and not going to church, that's it, it, that's not sinning. <laughs> so the government should be able to tell you. And I remember there's one guy. Um, I remember Todd Friel. I'll just say who it was because it was so public. Todd Friel made this comment about, well, if the government told me to go, uh, and it was some ridiculous scenario. Wear a hat with the spinny thing on it. On the wear a hat with. You're right. Go on a bridge with a hat with a spinny thing on it, and like, and, and be, like act like a clown. He's like, well, it's not a sin to act like a clown, so I guess I have to act like a clown. And I remember just thinking, like that. That's one of those ridiculous things. Like that's not the government's job to do that. They're outside their lane when they start saying stuff like that. Um, and, and that's part of the way that uh, we answered the, the COVID, COVID tyranny. Um, I'm wondering how Pierre Veret would navigate that if he would say, well, because I couldn't get a sense from his writing. If he had a, a wide sense of that, like uh, if it's if we have the responsibility, then the government would be asking us to disobey, okay. to usurp that. Or if he would have that narrow reading that we're so accustomed to today. What do you think? Oh, I have thoughts on this. I think if we if, if we brought Pierre, Pierre welcome to the 21st century. Um, here's the deal. There's a, there's a virus. It seems like it's bad. It probably was purposely, you know, uh, linked to us. And the, the, um, the solution is we can't go to church. <laughs> I think he would just totally. Fly. Yeah. I, I think you would think we're nuts too for that. Yeah. I, I think he thought, think that's like that scenario probably didn't even pop into his head as a possibility. It didn't um, for any of us really. So, I, well, I got a sense in reading it. It was, some of it's trying to mark down when, you know, because it's a, I mean, the book is just short parts of all the stuff that he's written. And it's not in a chronological order, but I get, did get the sense that as time went on, he developed that more and uh, what seemed narrow in the beginning widened out a whole lot more. Because um, in one of the later chapters, he starts talking about, um, taking advantage of whatever is offered within your particular government. And he talked about uh, Paul doing that and Paul even, well, Paul was a good example of that, but that you take advantage of those things. And so when it came to you know, the U.S., as our government is supposed to be rooted in the law. And so when the government itself is violating the law, then we need to take advantage of the fact they are violating the law and saying, it's like, no, you, as you put it, you're out of your lane. So we would submit to the government as far as um, it would be possible without violating what God has said, but also taking into account that when the government gets out of its lane to do things beyond what it's supposed to be doing, it's now become illegitimate. Yeah. It certainly got that sense that over time it started broadening. Yeah, I had that sense too, and I'm, I'm trying to hunt for the quotes that made me think that you, you sparked one of them in my mind. Cause he does write about you, uh, Paul's appeal to, to being a Roman citizen as a way of resistance. And I can't find the passage. I know, um, I, I marked it down. True obedience to magistrates who's answered scriptures. Uh, he talked about the midwives in Egypt. Right. Uh, right. He talked about the Jewish taskmaster. That one I was, I never thought about that way. They bore up under Pharaoh's tyranny, but they would not carry out the tyranny people under them. They bore the beatings. They would not beat the people under them. Um, yeah. You know, and, I, and, and to think his students, some of them wrote like the, the Heidelberg and the Belgic Confession 
and develop what's now some people call the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. He was, uh, he didn't know it as that, but that's what he was talking about. Uh, he gave the example of Rahab, who was uh, betrayed her own country because she had fear of God. Uh, Jonathan disobeying his father, who's the king, when it came to David, because what Saul had come with was unjust toward David. And so Jonathan's upholding true justice because that's fear of God rather than his father. And yet he was still loyal to his father and anything outside of those, you know, that was properly just. And so that's why I said that was a later, uh, something he wrote later. You just see this developing in him is uh, a little broader perspective than what was, you know, I think a little bit more simplistic in the beginning is until the government tells you something contrary to what God says, then you you have to obey it. Right. He says at one point, he says, if it is a people who have their own laws, liberties, and magistrates, and who render their duty to those who can claim some lordship over them, and despite this, some tyrant comes mm -hmm. who, instead of abiding by what he promised and vowed, uh, this is page 91, by the way, um, and instead of doing his duty as his office requires, he seeks to tyrannize those whom he ought to favor. This is another matter. Therefore, if such a people possess a lawful means to resist the tyranny of such tyrants by their legitimate magistrates and are able to, uh, by this means, to avoid slavery, they can follow the counsel of Paul uh, and he, uh, let each man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou? And so he, he quotes from 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, that was the passage I was thinking of uh, where he says, like, resistance is fine, but it needs to be, uh, you, you need to use lawful means. Um, and this is the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, really. That's what this yeah. is. Well, he goes on page 92. He's saying the same thing as an unjust, uh, unlawful ruler becomes tyrant. You need to defend yourself by the best means God provides. And then he continues on with that one is that rulers who do not defend what God is required to do is, you know, promote what is good and punish the evil. Then he said they're traitors and disloyal to God, country and people. Yeah. So. That was he, a strong passage. Yeah, he, he says to, to obey unjust laws is actually rebellion at one point, I know. Yeah, because he does develop a, a real sense here is that our obedience is first and foremost to God, and government is a means by which we obey God, but the government must, and he does that even at the beginning, it has to be a legitimate, just government, is if it's carrying out its responsibilities, promote that which is good, and chastise those who do evil and if it's not doing that it's a trait it's that government's a traitor to god on god so that is applicable to the situation we found ourselves in in, in covid he does discuss some of these things and draw some of these lines i wish he was around today to, to draw them even to, to apply them even more specifically uh, with his brilliant mind one of the things, though, that he brings up, and this is a debate that's currently raging, <laughs> and he addresses it, is whether or not civil magistrates have the responsibility to, um, to, to, to make public proclamations of Christianity somehow. And I, I brought this up a little bit earlier with the, the declarations made by pagan kings like Cyrus, but he says on page 74... Thus, it is enough for the ministers to have fulfilled his office and to have shown to men of all positions what they must do and to have labored for the salvation of each one as much as his office and the discipline of the church requires and allows. 
For the rest, he must leave to the magistrate what belongs to the magistrate. For the office of the magistrate is to abolish idols and all instruments of idolatry and to remove the public offenses that are within the church, just as Hezekiah and Josiah did according to the word of God. So here's the question I have. Reading the biography, Pierre Verre was known as a peacemaker between Catholics and Protestants. He was... I don't know exactly where he drew all the lines that he had. I mean, he, he talks about um, there, there is a section in here. Well, maybe we'll get to that next where he talks about freedom of conscience. Basically, he doesn't use that term, but that's what he's talking about, that the government can't compel the people to uh, to, to, to worship or to um, be part of a church that uh, that's not of their choosing. They, they have to there has to be some latitude for them. However, um, you have this. <laughs> so what do you make of this? That, that even civil magistrates are responsible to abolish idols. That, that is a controversy right now over blasphemy laws, whether uh, government should, let's, let's say if someone's profaning the name of Jesus, whether government should get involved and say no to that thing, that kind of thing. I think Pierre Bray would say absolutely they should. Well, this doesn't this get back to this explicitly, like, is where does the law come from? Where, where does it derive? And I don't know. I, I, it seems to me that we're just sort of almost pre-programmed. I mean, not, not us like individually necessarily, but like, I mean, I'm a public school teacher. So I, my, my feeling is that most people are pre-programmed with a, well, we're a democracy and democracy is the greatest thing that there is. That's the only form of government that works. And it only, you know, and, and it, it's good because it's, you know, it's pluralistic and multicultural. So because everybody look, we all live in peace and it's, it's great. And then you kind of, but you're like, do we really live in peace? Um, is it is there really is there really a ton of peace in this 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 situation? And um, you know, but that that like that pluralism just permeates. That's that it, that seems to me that that is the fundamental assumption, and it's also among Christians for the most part. I, I think most American Christians probably tend to that that's their starting point would be a pluralistic view. So this 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 is like crazy. This is crazy talk. This is you know, abolish idols, but, you know, but what freedom of religion we so, have. So, I mean, he, he thought that, like, Catholics and Protestants, and, and I'm not getting this from the book, but just the biography, that they could live under the same magistrate, that there, there was a possibility for this, but that the magistrate should be, I, I, he would say, Protestant. But, but there's not, there's not a possibility, and my, my proof would be that th this book is lesser known than this book, which comes oh, out only a couple decades later, and it comes out because the Catholic... You know, the Catholic paradigm did take precedence in France, and the solution was to kill all the Protestants. Right. What did they do? They fled. So, I mean, it did. Like, even if he's early, so maybe there was a thought that this could happen, but it obviously couldn't happen because France ended up becoming a Protestant less nation. It, my only point is he. He he seemed to be okay with various sects of Christianity, and I'm using that term broadly, uh, a Christendom. But he he seemed to think, though, that the civil magistrate had a responsibility to still take out idols. <laughs> and I, I would I don't know. I don't know if there was tension in his thinking or if I just haven't read enough or maybe different stages in his life. He came to different conclusions about things because he would probably think that because uh, most reformers did that there was idolatry being practiced uh, during the mass and that kind of thing. But, you know, it, it, it's. It's so foreign from the pluralistic outlook we have today where 
um oh man they're building a muslim mosque over there uh like the erlc for the southern baptist convention a few years ago the ethics and religious liberty commission filed a brief supporting the building of a muslim mosque in new jersey and it's like because because that's for religious freedom like that's insane that's that that would be so foreign to someone like pierre veray who would have um and he does actually he talks about the, the turks a little bit in here but but they're not they're not living amongst him they're not right there with him so it's more like people who have been captured by them. But this um, has, it wasn't. This was like the assumption for a very, very long time. It's only been more recently that because of pluralism, you know, I would I would tend to think post World War II. I feel like this is the post World War II world in a lot of ways. You know, yeah. I, the story that popped in my head was um, uh, Kruger, Paul Kruger, who was the premier of the um, uh, the Boer Republic, <coughs> Boer Republics prior to the Boer War. Um, there was some. There was a bunch of Jews who lived in. Uh, Pretoria, and he was asked. They asked him, "Can we have? Um, could we have some land to build a church?" Because part of the the government policy in the Boer Republic was, you would get an acre of land if you were building a church. And so he kind of thought about it and he said, "You can have half an acre because you believe half the Bible." So he gave, he gave them he gave them like there was tolerance. It was there was acceptance, but the the understanding was, no, this is a Christian. This is the Christian nation. All like our whole starting point, the outflow of everything, comes from the Bible, and so you're you can exist there. You're welcome here. We're not going to kick you out, but you you understand that this is this is the ruling paradigm. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, any other thoughts on that before we go into something else? Or we've been going for about an hour now, a little over. Well, I had one really really quick thought. I know you're going to say something bad, but this might. Just before I forget. So one thing that I noticed in both of these books is there's there's a lot of Old Testament. There's oh, like yeah, yeah. most most almost all the discussions that I've heard about cultural Christianity, Christian national nationalism, all that stuff. It seems like it's like, well, we kind of go to Romans 13. We go to a couple of passages in the New Testament, and that's really all that's relevant. That's all that really speaks to us. You know, um, if we're with the more woke evangelicals, then obviously Amos 5 matters too. But other than that, that's, that's kind of the it's like we go to the new testament and that's that's really all that's instructive but most the majority of what he's drawing from is old testament narrative and like principle that's where that's where all this information about governing is coming from yeah most, no, most that's a good point I, I didn't even think of that but you're right uh, that's uh, uh the question today has often been what is the new testament church uh what, uh, what, what does the new testament say the church should do and that's the only thing christians should be involved in and it's like well we have another testament <laughs> Veray so. uh, is doing what First Corinthians 10 tells us to do. Is we, the Old Testament was written for our instruction, and we need to go back to it to look for the examples of good and bad. And I think Veray did a good job in, uh, uh, in pointing out those examples. Yeah. I think so, too. Um, what do you tell someone who is working for a corrupt government? He, he talks about the Luke 3 and the instructions to tax gatherers. Uh, he seems to think that you can operate like a Daniel in these situations, but th there's a lot of people right now, especially with the pronoun stuff who are having to face some challenging issues, uh, either use the preferred pronouns or you don't work here anymore. You're, you're going to go to the, um, what do you call it? Uh, uh, education camp. Yeah, it's not, no, I was going to say the, in a job site, what do they call that office? It's on the tip of my tongue. Um, 
humans uh, Who, human yeah services. thank you that whatever that is the uh you're, you're gonna go talk to the ladies usually it's ladies um in that particular office and they're gonna have to put videos in front of you to train you or at the worst you may end up just losing your job uh what what would Veray say about that how to function in, in those capacities well after he scratched all his hair off his head trying to figure out what are you talking about uh he would say no you can't do that you, you can't daniel actually i think he'd probably go to daniel and um Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and said, here's an example. Uh, the king tells him to do something that's contrary to what is true. The loyalty is to God first, and that's where you must lie. Uh, Daniel's told not to pray. He's going to pray. Now, there's no command in Scripture that you have to pray three times a day and face Jerusalem, but that was his habit. He's not going to change it, and even though he gets thrown in you know, den of lions. Um, when it comes to these pronouns things, is you're being asked to lie. You're being asked to join somebody in their um, uh, mental confusion and support their mental confusion. Uh, you know, I, I, I was going to say it's like if they said they were a cat, you wouldn't agree with they're a cat, but that actually is popping up in schools too. Cats and dogs and other animals and kids come in costumes and want to be treated like that and let's put a litter box, you know, in the bathroom for them. Uh, that would be contrary to what God says we're supposed to be doing is just upholders of truth. So I, I think Ray would go directly back to the things that he, the principles he's put out is that our first allegiance isn't always to God. Our submission to him, our submission to magistrates must line up with the submission to God first. The magistrates ask to do something contrary to conscience, because uh, he actually uses that word too, contrary to um with the script that God has commanded in conscience, then we have to not submit to that. And yes, we will probably suffer for it. We we have someone uh, in the live stream who wants to ask a question. Uh, Dissident yeah. Leather Monster. Okay. That's a, I, mean, I don't think that's the name that your mom gave you. I, I would, I mean, it, my, no offense if that is the name that, you know, Dissident and then Leather Monster. You're on mute though, so I can't hear you. If you take your mic off mute, bottom left-hand corner is the mute button, uh, then we can get the question in. Um, he actually yeah. wrote uh, the question down, too. So maybe I'll just read it. And if you take your mic off mute, we can interact. Um, but this is the question that Dissident Leather Monster put in the private chat for patrons. Since the form of government we have is set up as rule by the people... How does that affect our ability to change the government as we see fit without the issue of submission to authority since the people are the country? Authority. What's that? Since people are the authority. This, this is this is like this is that classic, you know, whenever you got into during the COVID era, when you get into a discussion with somebody about Romans 13, and it was, well, Romans 13 says this, so that's that. And you were like, yes, yeah. but and you go into this sort of constitutional education world, but we have a constitutional republic. And then when it kind of was all said and done, for the most part, it didn't really, most of that didn't really matter at all. It, it really did kind of just seem to run as a de facto almost monarchy or oligarchy. The decisions that the elites made were what, what kind of went forward for the most part, except on the state level. So 
I don't know. I it's a good it's a good question because I mean my my question for our country, my question to that question would be, are we really we're not really we're not really a republic at this point. So does that even really care? Right. So we're not a federal republic. We're not a federal republic. Yeah. Well, we do technically have all of these these we should be who are yeah. Our system, right, including the Second Amendment, the, the, we have all these failsafe. Like, there's all these, you know, there's checks and balances, but there's also, um, you know, para, parachute cords that we can pull at different points, but they just most of them haven't been pulled. So, I don't know. Yeah, well, uh, it goes back to the variety mm-hmm. that early on is because man is corrupt. Doesn't matter what form of government you form, even. And I, I am. We had a discussion today. Am I uh, a? Uh, a boomer con the other day uh boomer con. <laughs> you know, like, no i'm a, i'm not a boomer con there's there's some boomer con tendencies but uh, <laughs> uh well yeah but i think we decided i'm a paleo con because i'm like it is like we're not even a constitutional republic anymore and i i think i told you both then i said like, you two have never even lived under a constitution in the years of your life our constitution was subverted a long time ago and the checks and balances supposed to be there have been usurped by evil people who will not follow what the Constitution actually said. That even goes all the way back to the 1960s when God was kicked out of the public schools saying you can't pray anymore, you know, a non-sectarian prayer. This stuff goes back a long, long way of the subversion of a, I think was a very well thought out way to form a government. But there's still this foundation. If the people are not a culture that is holding to the scripture, there's nothing that's going to hold it back from going awry as we have. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's a problem. So Bray, how he would respond to that question is that the authority is never going to be any particular form of government. It's going to be God himself. And the form of government needs to submit itself to what God has declared uh, in the scriptures. That's... I. You know, and I'm certainly no expert on Beret. I've only read the one book and the excerpts, but that certainly seems to be a theme he has throughout everything he's doing. Our submission is to God first, and even if that means suffering at the hands of tyrants, our submission is still to God. And we have the examples of those who've gone before us to encourage us in the midst of that. I think that's been something I've been trying to stress uh, in preaching through uh, First Peter the last, um, I guess, four or five months. Um, my hope is beyond this world. I'm going to obey God in whatever he's asked me to do. And everything else I'm going to do is going to be related to that. I'll submit to government as long as the government is doing what it's supposed to be doing so that I am submitting to God in submitting to government. If the government asks me something to do something contrary to what God has commanded me, I can't obey it, period. And I may have to suffer for it. I may be thrown in jail. I may be... could be executed back then there was a lot of executions that's yeah. okay you know if i'm executed i win i'm with christ um one of the things so he uh or, or she i'm not sure who uh dissident leather monster <laughs> man or, or woman but uh they put in the uh chat I'm speaking in the context also of the Declaration of Independence, which states that we have duty to throw off tyrannical government. So I'm speaking not just of civil disobedience, but also the use of force. So I have a quick point to make about this. 
because I, I think I knew uh, initially what was being asked. Um, you think of we the people, right? It, the uh, opening lines of of the uh, Constitution. Um, it, it it's a limited. It, it's limited. It's it's ourselves and our posterity that we're ordaining this Constitution. But it most people interpret that as individual people. That it, it's a um, the conglomeration of everyone got together and they drafted this constitution and people don't realize sometimes that was actually the committee on style who chose the language people there. It wasn't. And if you look at some of the, like the, the initial drafts, it was we, the States of, or we, the people of the States of, and then it listed the States. The problem with that though, is that not all the States had ratified and they didn't know which ones would ratify and which ones wouldn't. So it was easier to say we the people and, and and it was commonly understood what that meant now there were people like patrick henry who were very concerned about this because they they thought that there was an opportunity here to run roughshod over the the states and uh to, to have like a direct accountability to individual people which would have been devastating and um and so there were anti-federalists who saw this as a weakness but the intentionality behind it was that these are the people of states. So, so the actual, uh, it, it, originally at least, the actual correct way to think of our form of government is a, a federal republic in which the states are the ones who are uh, accountable to uh, the people in their own states, but they're responsible for um, running the, the central authority. And... So, so it's th that's the uh, correct arrangement. It's not the people and then nothing separating them and then the, the central authority. It's central authority, a limited central authority, as you just pointed out, David. And then the states, which are the ones who are uh, th that it's accountable to ultimately. So why is that important for the Declaration of Independence? I mean, the Declaration of Independence came first, but... It's worth noting that when Jefferson is writing this, he is writing, he's, he's borrowing a lot from the, um, a, a statement Virginia had already made about this. And, it, and, and at the time, there were committees of correspondence that had popped up all over the colonies, local authorities, some call it a shadow government, but these, these actually were the legitimate magistrates. They represented the interests of the people. And they fu they functioned in the ways that governments were supposed to function better than the royal governments, which, as Jefferson points out, were making war on their own citizens. So 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 here's the the main point I'm trying to make. When Jefferson's writing this and he's talking about abolishing the form of government, he's he's actually it's a conservative move in a way. He's saying that this is the long list of abuses that you've committed, that you that you are now delegitimate. You aren't government anymore. We can't treat you like a legitimate authority. And because you're no longer a legitimate authority, we're submitting to instead. Guess what? Our local state authorities. It was submission to local governments. And that's so, so there was legitimate authority. And, and this becomes important because Pierre Beret says things like. The only entity that can make war is the, the civil magistrate. It's not authorized for anyone else to make war except That's through the true. civil magistrate. Jefferson functioned in this way. Our, the founding of our country functioned in this way. All yeah. of the violence that was carried out was through legitimate governments. But it wasn't the king. It wasn't the crown or, or the parliament. It was the local state governments. 
and those yeah. state governments technically should all be st still, according to the Constitution, they should be the, the ones that uh, the, con the federal authority or the national authority is accountable to. Um, but I think people born probably after 1865, if they're in the South, especially are going to say, hey, you've never lived under their Constitution either for people who are born after that. So 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 we've had over the course of centuries a a downgrade in the we've been losing the Constitution more and more and more. And it's like every administration, we lose a little bit more of it. So it's gradual. Um, but but we haven't been functioning in the way we were intended to function for a long time. So I think that at least sets the framework for a question like that of, of um, you know, can we since we're the people aren't things like accountable to us? Well, yes, but <laughs> but there are civil magistrates involved in this. There's local authorities or state authorities, and we have to submit to those. So isn't this isn't this the crux of the entire thing, including the whole debate on Christian nationalism? Um, so regardless, I mean, uh, dissident leather, leatherman, leather monster is talking about is specifically talking about our system. But according to Veray, it doesn't really matter the system. You have lesser magistrates. The lesser magistrates are just uh, just the fact of the you know it's a necessity in any working political system. So it seems to me the crux of the debate is basically you have kind of one side, I guess, that is, okay, we, you know, if we, if we sort of have control of these lesser magistrates or if we can utilize these lesser magistrates, then we can, you know, push or achieve, um, you know, a more biblical framework for law, a more biblical framework for our culture and our society. Whereas kind of on the other side, you have, no, that's not, and that's kind of that's not our job. We're just sort of, it's, we're, we're here and persecution is going to come, but that's part of the deal. Um, so it, it isn't the crux of the whole thing kind of rest on that lesser magistrate issue, whether, whether or not that's legitimate. Can you use the, the lesser magistrate? Because if you can, then in our system, our democratic Republican system, whatever you want to call it, if we think that we should change things, then we should be trying actively, not only to promote ourselves, you know, pr to promote people, people who are good, people who are going to be, um, who are going to rule according to biblical mandate, but even ourselves, like that might be a call for, hey, Christians, you need to get involved in your school board, your local, um, off, you know, uh, uh, town board, town supervisory role, whatever it is, because you, once you occupy those things, you can legitimately have legitimacy in the eyes of God. Yeah. Isn't that kind of the point of it? Yeah, I think he discussed that page 9293 dealing with uh, that whole issue, which you're, you know, you're saying uh, less uh, magistrate um, among different things. Um, see if that happens, uh, that a ruler to whom by right they are not subject transformed himself into a tyrant was not content with what was his due and was rendered to him, but sought by tyranny, force, violence to destroy the gospel, religion, the liberty of the country, and like a Turk to destroy those whom he ought to protect as his children, the people must to defend themselves against this, his tyranny as the best means God has given them. There's no doubt that at, in such a case, the rulers and magistrates who exist bound to defend themselves, their people and the country which God has placed under their charge against such tyranny and violence. And so, you know, you did very well, Jonathan, on just explaining our uh, the Declaration of Independence and what was going on there is 
they saw themselves as now being treated as non Britain you know, subjects to Britain, but as something else. They were actually only declaring as we recognize what you've done to us. You rec you no longer treat us as we're your countrymen in a different country. We recognize that and our magistrates, you know, our committees of correspondence, the groups we formed, uh, they got together and voted it we're declaring ourselves independent now. You know, so it yeah. was to a legitimate government, legitimate magistrates all the way. And that, that's the same thing going on now. And even though it seems strange, uh, you know, in these years, it wouldn't have been that strange years ago that you'd have uh, defiance by states toward the federal government, because we have gotten into this idea that the U.S. government controls everything. We forgot that states are the primary, not the federal government. And that is the legitimate magistrate. And even when you get breakdown within a state, if the state is, is uh, well, like it did here, uh, Cuomo was calling for all sorts of things contrary to our own state constitution and the laws that were, uh, that he could employ, he was just making his dictates. And it was up to local sheriffs, uh, local county supervisors said, no, we're not doing that. This is and so let's, the lesser magistrate, and that's still going on in quite a few places. I think when you were down in Virginia, it was local sheriffs that were determining. Yeah, yeah, we had a few uh, counties near us that were uh, sanctuary counties. They, they they were not going to impose the governor's COVID edicts. Well, that's some reason so, that we were able to do what we were here in Wapenters. We had a good sheriff. Yeah, and um. You know, other counties didn't, and they were going to uphold the law. Even our um, county supervisor at the time, who wasn't great in some ways, was good on this one. Is like, we're not doing that in this county. And he yeah. called the governor out on it. So that is that whole principle that, uh, you know, you're referring to as the principle of the lesser magistrate. But that is what Vera Veret, uh, the French school yeah. gets me. Uh, I think it's Veray. If we've been right. saying it um, wrong the entire episode, I guess that's probably. embarrassing, but I'm pretty sure it's Veray. <laughs> well, um, Verrett. Verrett. Yeah, it doesn't well, have the same. Who wants French to listen to Verrett? I'm the Conquerors, so it's not really too French. So uh, I, I can't claim any of that. So I don't Well, uh, so <laughs> anyway, so the, what he yeah, is saying through all this thing is this we are in going in submission, but his whole thing about making war. Is going to there has to be a legitimate authority, a magistrate of some sort, by which you do it. Because his real concern seems to be individual rebellion or rebellion of a, a small group or something that has no legitimacy. Right. Uh, Bingo. Yeah. We talk about the Anabaptists, and I'm not sure what exactly he's referring to, but that had, I mean, they were rebellious. Well, you had the peasants war in Germany, maybe. And I, I that was what I thought he was probably talking about. Yeah, but that, yeah, um, you can have this organically, I think, too. The committees of correspondence were somewhat organic. And, and the founders talked about uh, some of them, at least this idea of a natural his, aristocracy. The idea is that God has um, equipped certain people to be leaders. He's just created them to, to be good at leadership and they will rise to <laughs> we we would hope that it would work this way but they rise to the upper ranks in a community of respect and so when you have um a very decentralized form of government where it's not a large population the human scale is everything's very accountable 
you have families that are prominent, that are influential and people who have been there for years who are influential that are respected. And when they get together at the tavern or at, you know, plantation house or wherever, wherever they happen to meet, they are essentially they're they are the government for that area. I mean, and, and this might sound tribal because there's places today that are more tribal that still operate this way. But um, when the king of England, this distant king, starts doing things to them, that's what they're naturally doing. That they're getting together, and these and things just naturally, naturally form uh, under those conditions. You have mechanisms of resistance in place that, and, and they do have legitimacy because there have been there's been trial and error uh, over a period of time. Respect has been built with these individuals. They're they're trusted. There's already this. Um, this bond in the community that's formed. We don't have a concept of that today. I think not a very good one. Cause all our leaders are basically what he said would happen in a, a democracy. Eventually that they're all corrupt and they don't have our best interests in mind. And we don't really respect them. We make fun of them. I've seen we as, you know, a body politic. So we, we don't have a, a concept of that, but I mean, in theory, you could have that even today in small communities, especially where the people, the, 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 business owners or the, the people who are just influential in the community almost form a default government in times of trouble. And like I was in Grant, Nebraska, I've, I've mentioned this before during COVID and they told me nothing changed. The school shut down because it's federal. Everything else, you could walk into the store without a mask. Nothing changed in that community. They weren't enforcing anything. It's a little town and, and it, it's just the way it works. Everyone knows everyone. The school's not federal. And that was a problem with their school board of, being coerced by the federal dollars probably and had no authority in the school other than we're going to withhold the money. And that's where a lot of the poop comes in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, we've been that, going an hour and a half. So problem. let's it, oh, David, you had something. No, I mean, I was just going to say really quick. I mean, I can make this really personal for me because I'm streaming this from Tennessee um, and you guys are both in New York. And the reason for that is has to do in some ways with lesser magistrate because our lesser magistrate, uh, well, I guess our higher magistrate as well, um, you know, decreed that my wife had to get an extremely effective, um, very safe shot while she was pregnant. And, you know, she lost her job. Our lives were upended. And so we sought out a different magistrate to live, live under, basically. You know, so one of the, I don't know, I guess one of the, one of the beauties of our system and our, you know, at least the, whatever's left of the federal system is that at least we still have that option. I didn't have to immigrate to another country. I didn't have to, we just found a magistrate that was more in line, that is still more in line with um, biblical ethics and law. And we live under that magistrate now. Right. You did immigrate to a different country, a different state, a different culture. I, I mean, it, it is, it's not for Pierre Bray. He doesn't talk about this, but there is an argument to be made that you switch nations in a way. It could be yeah, that drastic. Yeah. Cause it, I, I mean, I know, you know, boomer cons, and this is where dad, you do have a little bit of a boomer con tendency because you will say America is a nation. And uh, uh, I, I think the younger conservatives tend to think of it as more of an empire composed of many nations that um, are so different than one another. And New York is very different than Tennessee. So are they the same nation? That's yeah, kind of hard. Like, what, America, what do they have in common? America's not a nation. America's an idea, John. Oh, no. Well, that's even worse. <laughs> uh, someone actually was writing about that in the 
Yeah, saying, <laughs> saying, I guess if we use the term country, Anthony Scott Homer said, country is a propositional nation. One is not the other. So I, I don't, country is an old word. Country is... My country um, tis of thee. Yeah, country, well, but way before that even. I think, I mean, it's in French, so I don't want to say, I don't know what the equivalent in French is, but country is used, let's see, 34 times in this book. Uh, and, and it's linked to a people. So, yeah. Anyway, um, well, uh, if there's any final thoughts, now would be the time because we've been going over an hour and a half now. So we're yeah, reading. I have final thoughts. You want to go first, David? Sure. I mean, it's. I think this book is is definitely worth reading. If you want to, if you want to get a full like historical context of these questions, like if you want to. If you want to, if you're a passive observer of the the Christian cultural, Christian nationalism, whatever you want to call it, few debate, I don't know, <laughs> me more, um, that's currently sort of underway. I feel like you will get a lot out of reading several books. One would be, one would be this one. Um, another one would be Vindicii Contra Tyrannis. Another one would be Lectoris. Um, And then you're going to be very informed on the like the the Protestant tradition of. Um, Christian response to government, Christian relationship to government. And it helps to know the historical context too, because again, this book, the tone of this book is very different than Vindicii. And I think the historical context matters because when they're, when the magistrate is breathing down your neck and putting signs up saying, if you find these people, kill them, the, the tenor changes very quickly. So um, that's not to say the truth changes, obviously it doesn't, but um, the, uh, the tenor does. So, it's definitely this is I think this is a really good starting point. If you haven't read any of anything on Protestant political theory, uh, start here. Yeah, I think good. we should read that other book next. Um, I actually tried to print it out and I wasn't successful. But I, I'm going to guess as you get into it, he's going to be operating the very same principles that uh, Veray has expounded here. Um, I, I had eight pages of notes. Um, and here's my summary. One, this is excerpts of his writing. So you're not going to, it just gives you a taste of it. Uh, it has a good explanation why human governments fail and the necessity for a government to have priority on obedience to God's law to be successful. It is, uh, it's not the form of government. It's a commitment to the, of the government to obedience to God's law. Uh, he shows careful thought about the duties of magistrates in upholding God's law and people being in submission to magistrates in keeping with upholding God's law, including honoring magistrates. Uh, he gives a lot of careful thought about the demarcation of duties of ministers and magistrates, with understanding of the rare exceptions when there uh, is some overlap, and a caution of seeking to do so. Ministers that call out the magistrates for not following God's law to repent. Um, and then though not fully developed, these theories about just war are presented. It's, it's, he's got to start there. And then great encouragement I found in the book to trust God, follow him, even if it means unjustly suffering at the hands of tyrants. We live in this world, but our citizenship is in heaven. That would be my summary. All right. Well, good. Um, since we've been going for a while now, we're going to land the plane. There's a lot more that could be said. Uh, I don't know what, how is Gordon, Gordon San Sanchez in the... Hmm. It's interesting. Gordon Sanchez is in the uh, chat, but someone... That is weird. Okay. Uh, 
We're not going to talk about Lacho Libre. We're going to land the plane. Uh, if anyone has suggestions on other books that you'd like to discuss or hear discussed, uh, you can certainly message me. If you're a patron, you can direct message me, and I'll definitely look at which uh, which you message me. But uh, but if not, you can try through uh, Facebook or Gab. I'm, I'm on most of those. Other than Twitter, I'm on most of the social media outlets. Um, and uh, yeah, appreciate everyone who participated. Uh, more coming later this week. God bless. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.